I greet you this morning in the precious name of Jesus our Lord. I, I do indeed uh, feel a certain at-homeness here. It, we weren't, hadn't crossed the border long until I said, this feels like Minnesota. And one of the other travelers said, and what is significant about Minnesota? Well, I'm not sure. It just felt like home. I can hear it on the drum on the road. The pop, 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 pop. When you go down the road, I said, this, this, we came home. This is Minnesota. And, uh, <clears throat> but I also confess that it's just days near 40 years since I left uh, with a, uh, well, maybe I'll leave that part. I, I went to Faith Mission Home intending to put in a year of service. I didn't know what the Lord had for us. Um, pardon that term, put in a year of service, but that's kind of the way it was, I suppose. And uh, <clears throat> that's been 38 years ago, and I've never come back. Um, and uh, to the disappointment of my father somewhat, although Melvin was there and took the farm on, I'm supposing some of you know Melvin Byler. His wife is my oldest sister. And <clears throat> but the Lord brought me a wife, there at Faith Mission, we enjoyed the work with the handicapped children. It, uh, it wasn't long until I was in love with the work and the uh, vision and burden for working with children of that nature grew on me. Did a little bit of training at EMC and so on to continue that and for the next 25 years worked there at Faith Mission. And uh, by that time God had given us 10 children and we were hoping to be able to work together as a family on an old project and uh, God miraculously opened doors for a little produce patch, a little farm down the road. Uh, you, you'd smile when you say, uh, uh, when, I, when I say farm. Uh, it has little resemblance to the farms of southern Minnesota. It's a little patch of real estate stuck on the side of a mountain and uh, <coughs> We, we raise produce and sell it both uh, wholesale and retail. Um, today, five of our children are married. Uh, a son and son-in-law have, uh, uh, for all practical purposes, taken the business on. You know, as I pick tomatoes and squash in yesteryear, I used to say, I'm looking for the day when instead of it being Yoder and sons, it'll be sons and Yoder. And that day has come. Uh, today they keep on picking and I go with Pete and Jonathan hither and thither and the work goes on at home and I'm very grateful for that. <clears throat> How did we get there? I invite your attention to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> I, uh, I've enjoyed the service this morning very much, the singing, the devotional, um, the Sunday school hour, the story of Elijah. Elijah has been a hero of mine ever since I can remember as a child. I remember thinking of that Carmel time. You know, <clears throat> I, I think the concluding thought that I would have to the Sunday school lesson, at least that which is personal to me, is the fact that, you know, I asked the question if we should have Carmels today and... Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if Minnesota has a big enough mountain to put a Carmel on or not, but uh, we have those resident in, in Virginia. But in all seriousness, I don't think the call is to, is to call the people of Minnesota to the top of some high hill here, 
but rather that each of us, as we are faced with the decisions of the day, and we halt between those decisions, that somehow we find the grace to bow our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and say, the Lord, he is God in this given situation as we go through life. I think that's the challenge of the Carmels today. And I think as the people of the world watch a, a people of God that are separated unto him, follow him through thick and thin, and stand for truth in the face of a dark society that is increasingly finding sin a normal way of life. And there we stand as a beacon. And we don't bend and we don't bow to the gods of this world. I think there's where the caramels are still being, uh, being done. And may God grant us grace to do that faithfully. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 2, I have two texts in mind. The one from Hebrews 2, the other one from Colossians 1. And we'll look first at, this, at, this, uh, at the first three verses here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Do your things slip? You know what that word means? It simply means to leak, to drain away. Um, will the challenge of Elijah stay with us through this week, or will we let that thing slip? <clears throat> He says the antidote to things slipping is that we give earnest heed to them. Well, let's read on. He says, For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? We could read on and the question mark is at the end of verse 4, but I'd like to simply bring it back to verse 3. <clears throat> I've entitled the message, So Great Salvation. Yesterday we were traveling, and as three men do when they travel, they talk. At least these three men did. And we, uh, besides fixing the problems of the world, we're looking at some very, uh, some deep theological issues. The essence of salvation. What really is salvation? What does it mean to accept Christ? Is that even a scriptural term? And the, the conversation went on. Last night I opened my Bible and in prayer, just trying to understand what the will of the Lord was. This, this simple truth was impressed upon me and I want to share from both this portion and then from Colossians 1. Great salvation, he calls it. Is salvation great to you? Today we have all kinds of great things. We have great pumpkin pie and we have great trucks and we have great trips and we have great this and that. But here it's not any of those. It's a great salvation. And, <clears throat> you know, when I think of, of salvation, what is it? The Bible has many descriptions for it, actually. Salvation, we, the Bible talks about the helmet of salvation. The Psalms talk about the rock of our salvation. Isaiah talks about the wells of salvation. In fact, I think we may sing a verse of that song after a bit. I just love that concept of the, the, the wells of salvation. Isaiah 12, 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and song, and he also has become my salvation. 
I love that picture. So many times I think we think of salvation as, like I said, that little familiar cliche that we say a person accepts Christ. And though I'm not going to pick bones with that publicly this morning, I do have a few issues with it. There's a much broader concept to the, to the idea of salvation. Whereas, like it says here in Isaiah, God is my salvation. It is only in Him that we have salvation. Not a little situation, not a little instance in our prayer room perhaps. <clears throat> the Lord is my strength and song. He is become my salvation. Psalm 118 verse 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I think these are verses that begin to, to set the stage as we think about salvation. <clears throat> what does it mean to be born again anyway? Have you experienced it? Are you enjoying salvation today? Are you anticipating the fulfillment of salvation I wonder when the last time your heart broke or your eyes overflowed for what it cost for your salvation and mine. I was deeply challenged some time ago at a prayer meeting. <clears throat> took place in the backside of a Shoney's restaurant. And it was a very intense prayer meeting. It was the morning of the court trial when Faith Mission Home the state had intended to close Faith Mission. And we could tell stories all day about that, but I'm going to limit it to one small incident. <clears throat> and it was a very, very traumatic time for Faith Mission. All the children were going to be taken away and the doors were going to be closed. That's what the lawsuit said in just a matter of a few days. Well, we gathered, it was, it was on June the 30th of 1984, I think, um, or 85, I'm not even sure enough to think what day it was, beside the point. But we said we need to have a prayer meeting before we go into the courtroom. Anybody that wants to can gather with us at Shoney's. And we asked for the banquet room in the back, and that thing was nearly full. There was parents, there was board members, there was administrative personnel, and uh, there was an attorney there from Christian Law Association in Ohio, Charlie Craze, and, and others. And we met there, and we got our coffee, and we began sharing together the promises of God's Word that He gives to His people. Various people shared, and then we said we need to pray. We knelt around those tables, and we began to pray. And I, the waitress, it, it was an unusual sight. You know, every now and then they'd peek and see if we need more coffee, and here were these, what, 30, 40 people on their faces before the Lord. And uh, obviously, coffee was second, was, was down the, the line. That was not the important thing. And people began to pray, and they prayed for the attorneys, and they prayed for the children, and they prayed for the judge, and they prayed for the purpose that we were gathered there. <clears throat> and after many people had prayed, Charlie Craze began to pray. I don't think I'll ever forget what he said. As he opened his heart to the Lord, the first words that rolled out of his mouth were, Thank you, God, for your great salvation. And I began to ponder that. And you know, the, the issue at hand was, was the court and the trial and the judge and the attorneys. And some of us were on the witness stand for hours that day. Grueling time 
being first examined and then cross-examined by prosecuting attorneys. <clears throat> but the important thing on his heart was, thank you, God, for salvation. And there's been times in my life when at heavy times I've come to prayer and I've thought back to that prayer meeting and I've prayed the same. Salvation has become very dear to me and it's a very... It's a very uh, meaningful experience, and I, I'm sure it is for many of us. Today, I think we have a serious influx of Calvinism and easy believism and pray this little prayerism and a lot of other things that go with that to where the, a life of following Jesus is not quite there the way that it should be. <clears throat> Salvation is a multi faceted jewel. It's like a prism. We have a prism hanging in our kitchen. We have a skylight in our kitchen at home. And I bought my wife a prism. And it's a chunk of glass about this big around. And it's practically round. And it has probably a hundred facets on it. Uh, cuts. And uh, when the sun shines in on that, there's little rainbows about six inches long that literally dance all over the kitchen and dining room. Hundreds of them. And you can go over there and give it just a gentle spin and these rainbows zoom all over the room. But I find the, the concept of salvation that way. You can look at it from a dozen different angles and any way you behold salvation, it simply becomes more glorious. <clears throat> it's amazing. Salvation is a non-issue to many people. And I believe there's a reason why. You know, if you're... When, to, to get out here, I flew. Usually we drive all over the U.S. I've flown some. Usually when we cross the ocean, we fly instead of drive. But the, we did that coming out here too. And <clears throat> when we got in the plane there at Charlottesville... Um, and we zigzagged across the country to get to Nebraska, including being here in Minnesota and Minneapolis. But they get out their little card out of the seat, and they ask you to pay a little mind to what they're covering here, the safety aspects of this aircraft. And at one point, I used to follow along and pay some mind to that. It's been a while since I pulled that card out of its pocket and followed along and paid any mind to it. But one thing that they do cover... And I think of this especially when we go back and forth to Ukraine is the fact that if this plane comes down, there's no cornfield there. There's no highway that might be empty for them to land on. We're on top of water, and it's deep water. And uh, they usually tell us a little bit about that. And they say if, there's a, if this plane starts going down and if it makes a landing in the water, uh, there's some flotation devices. Your seat can be used as a flotation device. I've never quite figured out how you sit on it and pick it up at the same time, but you're supposed to be able to get up and pick up that seat cushion and hug it to yourself and then jump out. And um, well, I've never had to do that, but there's one thing that I know, and that is that if we were crossing the Atlantic or Lake Superior, and all of a sudden the pilot would come on the air and say, um, we miscalculated. This plane just ran out of fuel. We're going down. Prepare for landing in the Atlantic Ocean. 
all of a sudden the card in the seat pocket would become vitally important. The flotation device potential, the life rafts, the shoots out of the exit windows, it would be no laughing matter. I can guarantee you one thing, I would grab for that card and I'd want to know exactly how that seat comes loose and how to hang on to it and where the nearest exit door is, if it's in front or behind, I'd want to know those things. The reason is there's a crisis pending and I know that we're going down. All of a sudden, salvation would be of essence because I would recognize that this plane is not going to keep on flying. The truth of the matter is, the population today we are in that airplane of life and we're cruising along and many are just kind of sitting back and relax and enjoy the flight. That's what they tell us to do, you know, because they expect to make it safe to the other side. But the Bible tells us the plane's going down. The Bible tells us this thing's running out of fuel. The Bible tells us that we're going to land in the middle of the Atlantic. And people are not paying mind to it. And if, as they become aware of it, they begin to cry out to God, Save me! I need your salvation! I can't make it on my own! I recognize that if I die without you, I'm going to hell! And all of a sudden, that little card in that seat pocket becomes a vital piece of life. I hope it's that for us this morning. This morning, we have no guarantee of tomorrow. Salvation, what an incredible, incredible gift. I would to God it would be like the songwriter says, Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy likeness to grow, searching for more and for deeper communion. And now it fell right out of my mind. Yes. <clears throat> yearning thy love more fully to know. Open the wells of grace and salvation. Pour those rich streams deep into my heart. That's the desire of my heart this morning. Let's just sing a verse of that song. Lord, I am fondly, earnestly longing into thy holy this chapter one day and suddenly these beautiful truths standing out. This is a, a lovely portion of Scripture, <clears throat> rich portion of Scripture. I'd like to begin reading in verse 9. And both last night and this morning, 
congregation, I prayed this prayer for you. This is, was the desire of Paul. There are five things that he prays for. Beginning in verse 9, he says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might. And here is the first one, Be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Number two, he prays that ye might be that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the third and fourth one there at the end of verse ten, and then the fifth one in verse eleven, he prays that they might be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. And like I said, that is my prayer for you, that these purposes of God, these gifts of God can be a reality in your lives personally and as a church corporately. But then the text portion is in verse 12 and following. And he says, "...giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And I should have just prefaced this as we read this. I want you to be looking for salvation in this portion. Okay? Because we saw it. I, I saw it one time in verse 12. Did you? And it's again in verse 13. Let's continue reading. Um, we're going to break into the middle of the sentence here, of course. Verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. We'll stop reading there. Some beautiful truths in the end of the chapter. But I'd like to look at seven aspects of salvation, seven descriptions of salvation. It's a sevenfold uh, picture of salvation in this portion. The first one is there in verse 12. We could read it this way, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of salvation. And the first description that we have there of salvation is that salvation is an inheritance that is given to us. It's an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is a gift. It's a gift that's given to us after the parent passes away, which mine both have. John and Mary, dad and mom, passed away. Dad just a few years ago, 
Mother, it's been 15 years. <clears throat> but uh, the, the, uh, an inheritance, you know, it's something we don't work for it. We really don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But it's given to us as an inheritance. And that's the way salvation is for us. There's a verse in First Peter, a few verses, where Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, it's reserved in heaven for you. And that's a very interesting dynamic in salvation. And I want to point that out at the conclusion of the message. Salvation is, a, is both a past experience, it's a present entity, and it's a future hope. Salvation is all three of those. And he, he recognizes that here, that salvation is like an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. <clears throat> so salvation is pictured as an inheritance. And there's many other verses we could look at that point out that same concept, but we'll move on. Number two, look at verse 13. He says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness? Salvation is a deliverance. Salvation is a deliverance from the power of darkness. Now, <clears throat> what do you think of when you think of deliverance? I'd like for you to picture this morning a shepherd and a sheep and a lamb. And the, the sheep and lamb are moseying along, grazing on grass, and certain, suddenly out of the woods there comes the lion. And he comes bounding in and he pounces on the lamb and the lamb is helpless. The lamb is in the grip of the lion. The lamb can do nothing about it. But there's a shepherd nearby, and the shepherd does what needs to be done. He comes to the lion, and either he beats him or shoots him, but he does what, what needs to be done to the lion, and the lamb is rescued. The lamb is delivered. That's the picture that is here. And he says he has delivered us. Notice what we are delivered from. I find this interesting. It says the power of darkness. Now, scientifically, we usually say darkness doesn't have any power. Darkness is just the result of the absence of light. You turn the lights off, darkness comes in. But darkness is easy to kick out. All you need to do is flip the lights on and darkness flees. Well, that's true. But in a spiritual sense, darkness has power. Darkness binds. Darkness can enslave. Darkness has a grip. He talks here about the power of darkness. <clears throat> well, it does have that power. But salvation is a deliverance from that grip. Salvation is a deliverance from sin. Jesus, it was prophesied in Matthew 1.21 to Mary, and she shall bring forth a firstborn son. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. He will deliver them from sin. So salvation is a deliverance from sin. Colossians 2.15 has another deliverance. It says, And having spoiled principalities and power, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Triumphing over it. That's speaking about the devil, I believe. The uh, salvation is a deliverance from the power of the enemy. <clears throat> it's also from eternal death. That beautiful verse in John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Salvation is a deliverance from eternal death, from hell itself. 
So the second picture we have here is that salvation is a picture of deliverance. Let's go on. So we have salvation is an inheritance. Salvation is a deliverance from the power of darkness. And there's another one in verse 13. He says there that um, we have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Salvation is a translation process. Now some of us have worked some with translation issues. What does, it, what does this translation process entail? I suppose all of us have at times, if you've done any traveling in a foreign country and otherwise too perhaps, maybe you have it in, in the East, a lot of signs anymore are in Spanish. And you can see uh, sometimes there's, there's forms that need to be filled out in their Spanish. But the, if you travel to, to Ukraine, <clears throat> or any foreign country for that matter, and you pick up a newspaper or you pick up a book and you take and you open it up, it's gibberish. It it's, makes no sense to you. You can't read it. You can't understand it. It has to be translated. And we have an active team of translators in Ukraine that take books of importance and Sunday school material and they're constantly working at translating this stuff to make so that the people of another language can read it. Now, <clears throat> there's an amazing thing here that's when he talks about translation. There are, there are people that today are saying what we really need to do is take this book and translate it so that it is modern, so that it's up to date, so it's up to speed with the way we want to live. There's things in there that are outdated. There's things that aren't the way the culture today runs. Well, this is true. This is true that it's that way. But this book, this, this salvation process isn't talking about translating the Word of God. It's talking about translating us. Translating us. So picture that same concept. You see... We come, we see the spiritual life. People look at the Christian life and it's gibberish. It doesn't make sense. It's, it, they just don't understand why we live the way we live and why we do the things we do and why we don't go and why we do go and so on. The things that we live. It doesn't make sense. But you know what happens with salvation? We don't need this book translated. We get translated. It's us that gets changed. And suddenly when we get translated from the ways of the world to the ways of God, all of a sudden that which was as dry as shredded wheat becomes a joy. It becomes a delight to look at the Word of God and to read. This meeting place used to be a bore. It was an endurance test to come and sit perhaps for somebody. Well, now it's a joy to gather with the people of God and to hear the word of the Lord. It's a translation process that takes place. And if you can't relate with that today, you're in need of a translation from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. <clears throat> what a blessing that translation process is. There'd be other scriptures that would that would uh, have a similar thought. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. That, that's a translation process. That change from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. 
John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but what? Has been translated from death unto life. He says he's passed from death unto life is King James Version. <clears throat> what a glorious translation. A glorious translation. Okay, there's another one. There's another one, I believe. Let's look further here. And then in verse 14, we could read it this way. In whom we have salvation through his blood. Isn't that how we have salvation? Indeed it is. We could put salvation right in there. But here the word is redemption. The word is redemption. In whom we have redemption through his blood. And redemption is a factor of salvation. It's a description of <clears throat> what is redemption. We sometimes sing the song, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. Redeemed. Redeemed. That's redemption. <clears throat> redemption has to do with purchasing, with, a, with buying power. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Purchased. Now, we've all, it, almost to the youngest children, know a little something about purchasing. We go to the store, we want that candy bar, that bottle of pop, that cup of coffee, that new car, whatever it is. How do we get it? We need to buy it. And there's an exchange that takes place. They, uh, we give them a few nickels and we get that piece of gum or whatever it is. Some of the things that we buy take a few more nickels, doesn't it? Well, but still, it's a, it's a purchase factor. <clears throat> Salvation has come at a price. Not of dollars and cents, but someone loved us so much, he gave his life. He shed his blood. He said, I'm going to die that they might live. What an amazing purchase. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. <clears throat> it's almost like an understatement. For ye are bought with a price. Yes, it was a price. It was an incredible price. It was the price of blood. 1 Peter 1.18 For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The idea that runs through these verses is not so much that, um, well, it, the idea is that payment has been made for the sin rather than it just being canceled. And I know that I was thinking of that and I, the song came to my mind, fully canceled was the debt, one on Calvary's mountain. And indeed, in a sense, that debt was canceled, but I think more accurately, it was paid. The debt was not just chalked off, it was satisfied. 
And the blood of Jesus Christ was the only thing that could do that. Now I'd like to tell the children a little story to help them understand redemption. Children, are you listening? There was once a little boy, I'm going to call his name Philip, and he was a, he was a creative little chap, and he made himself a boat. He lived beside a little stream, and he made a boat. And he painted that boat, and he had a little sail on it, and he enjoyed so much going out to the river and floating his boat in the water. And he would watch it go, and he had a little string on it, and he would let it float, and then he'd take the string and he'd pull it back in. And he had many enjoyable hours with his little boat on the water. <clears throat> and he became more uh, creative with it, floating it out there on the water. And one day... The boat drifted out into a swift current and it took off. It drifted away. And he ran along the, the shore trying to... And the water was too deep. He would wade into the water, but the boat was always beyond. And he kept on until he knew he was too far away from home. He had to go back home. And he cried and his boat was gone. It had drifted down the stream. Oh, he was so sad. His dear little boat had drifted away. And days went by, and one day, Philip was on his way home from school, and he stopped in at the store, as he did sometimes, where he walked past the shopkeeper's window, and there in the window was that little blue boat. And it looked just like his. And he stopped, and he looked, and he looked carefully, and it was his. The same string was still on it. The same little sail was on it. He ran into the shop and he said, Mr. Uh, Sir, that boat in the window is mine. I want it. Oh, he was so happy. Well, the shopkeeper wasn't so impressed. He said, no, the boat is mine. Uh, somebody brought it in and sold it to me. I paid for it. Now, he said, you can buy it if you want to. Well, how much does it cost? And he said, well, it costs $5.25 to buy this little boat. And Philip said, but I don't have that. I want the boat. And he said, no, you need to buy it. And so Philip runs home and he tells his mother and his father the story that the little boat that he had made has been found and it's in the shop's window. And his dad said, well, then we need to pay for it in order to get it. And he gave his son a few ideas, how he could earn a few nickels and dimes and quarters and a few dollars. And uh, by the way, Philip had dumped out his little piggy bank and he had $3 in it. He still needed $2.25. And so his dad helped him and he was able to pull some weeds in the neighbor's garden and whatnot. And he earned 25 cents here and a dollar there. And finally he had the $5.25. And he goes back to the shop and he gives the man the money. I want my boat. And the shopkeeper, indeed, took the boat out of the window and gave it to Philip. And he hugged that little boat to himself and he said, you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you back. And he took that little boat home. Children, that's a story of redemption. We belong to Jesus Christ because he made us. And because he made us, when you make something, it's yours, right? Yes, and he made us. We belong to him. 
But in our sinfulness, we have strayed away from God. Because of the blood of Jesus, that's the money. That's the purchase price. He has shed his blood to buy us back. And we belong to him twice now. He made us and he bought us. Redemption. That's the story of redemption. We have it right here. Let's look at another one. The next one. Verse 14, he says, In whom we have salvation, redemption, through his blood, even salvation. Oh, it says in the King James Version, even the forgiveness of sins. Did you know that's the essence of salvation? That's what salvation is. The forgiveness of sins. Oh, I wonder if today we are grateful for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what stands between us and God. That's man's problem. In Genesis 3, we have the story of how that the... <clears throat> How sin came into the world through that rebellious act of turning away and disobedience to the command of God. Indeed, in that one instance, there was the, uh, the situation where sin entered, entered the world and death by sin. And today, that is still your problem and mine, is our sin. It is sin that separates us from a holy God and puts distance between us. And that glorious thing that bridges that is forgiveness. Even the forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> oh, I love that portion. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's forgiveness. So much more could be said about forgiveness. It's just a glorious truth. It's a beautiful thought that I want to sink into your souls this morning. That salvation is the forgiveness of sins. But there's two more yet that I want to consider just briefly. The next one is down in verse 21. He says, "...in you that were sometimes alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works..." yet now have experienced salvation. It's reconciliation. It's being reconciled. Now the idea of reconciliation is a restoration of broken relationship. And here again, I think the children can relate to that. I think all of us can. You know what it's like when you get into a spat with somebody. Now, I'm sure there's no husbands and wives here that have ever done that. But sometimes... Even big people get into a spat. And they say things that are unkind. They do things that hurt. And we don't feel good with that person that we have just hurt, do we? And so there's, there's distance between us. <clears throat> it can happen between, between brothers. It can happen between young and old. I think of the prodigal son who went to his father... And he said, give me the inheritance. I'm taking my own way. And literally there he went into a far country. And there was distance between father and son. There was broken relationship. It was not open and sweet between them. But you know what happened with the prodigal son? 
there came a day when he came to himself and he said, what a fool I have been in breaking this relationship. I'm going back to my father and restoring that. That's salvation. Salvation is reconciliation. But the amazing thing is, here, reconciliation is not between father and son. It's not between brother and brother. It's not between husband and wife. It's between me and my God. And indeed, there is. When we are living in sin, there is that great gulf that is fixed between us. There is that distance between us where there is not communion, there is not joy, there is not relationship. It's like we are poles apart and there's a great chasm between. But you know what salvation does? It bridges that. Salvation restores. Salvation bridges. Salvation brings back together. That, that picture of the prodigal son coming back to his dad and their arms being around each other and their tears being mingled, that's a picture of reconciliation. And I love to think of that between me and my God. The distance that sin has made. Yet today, we can be reconciled through salvation. What a beautiful truth. There is one more. And this one here is, is future for the most part, perhaps. It is future, but it's in verse 22. And I wasn't even sure what to call it. I thought of transfiguration. I thought of transformation. Perhaps I'll just let you call it what you want to. I think transformation may be a good word to use there. But he says there that he, we are reconciled in the body of his, of his flesh through death. And then he pictures the ultimate finale of salvation. When we are presented holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Oh glory, bring it on. I can hardly wait for that day. I struggle today with issues. There's times my tongue wags faster than my common sense. There's times that there's emotions that rise up that shouldn't. There's times that I have done things that I have later regretted. But I have a God who forgives and who reconciles. I know there's blood been shed to atone for those things. And someday, someday... I'm going to be able to stand before Almighty God by the grace of Jesus Christ and be presented wholly before Him. Glory! That's salvation. That's the essence of salvation brought to fruition. That's the completion that I long for is when salvation will be complete and we will be forever with the Lord. <clears throat> There's a verse in Hebrews 9 that talks about that, the last verse of that beautiful chapter. I need to turn to it. I can't quote it. It says that as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him will He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Glory.